Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique self and business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is John O'Leary. Once expected to die young, John now teaches others how to truly live. As an internationally acclaimed speaker, number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire and a new book, In Awe, and host of the Live Inspired podcast, John empowers hundreds of thousands of people each year to live inspired. He shares his insights and inspiring message with emotional storytelling, unexpected humor, and authentic joy. Welcome to the podcast, John. I'm really delighted to have you here. Ursula, what a joy to be with you. Well, I, I so enjoyed your book, and I was very moved by the story of your mom and the piano teacher at the age of nine after you lost your fingers in a fire. And what came out of that for you? Because um, I think this is a really pertinent message for us right now. So we've been doing, obviously, when you roll out a book that's uh, on the national level, a lot of interviews, a lot of podcasts, a lot of television, a lot of print. And you're the very first person to ask me about the piano story, which amazes really? me. Because I think it's one of the coolest That's, stories. It's a great I do too. I was so powerful. I'm amazed. And so for the folks who know nothing about John O'Leary at age nine, he was burned on his entire body. He lost his fingers in, in the hospital. He spent five months in the hospital. He came home from that hospital and had to figure out what kind of life he was going to live going forward, thinking that there wasn't really much possible for him. I mean, I'm in a wheelchair, Ursula. I have scars over my entire body besides my face. I don't have fingers. I'm wrapped in bandages. I'm on a morphine drip. What kind of life can I really live? Even as a nine-year-old, you begin thinking about how difficult this will be going forward. So wow. that I come home on a Saturday and on Tuesday, I'm at the kitchen table, the doorbell rings and it's our piano teacher. And Ursula, I, I hated piano before I got burned. <laughs> like the, the idea of taking piano now was not top of my bucket list. I know she's not there for me because I don't have fingers, but no one else is home except my mom. And my mom comes in, I look up and I say, mom, what is she doing here? And my mom was never lost for words, but on that day she <laughs> said nothing. She just quietly approached me. She unhooked the brakes of my wheelchair. She rolled me away, took me down a hallway toward my great grandmother's piano, locked the brakes and piano's on. And the entire 30-minute lesson, my left arm is up in a sling, like it's called an airplane splint. My right hand is wrapped in a boxer's glove, essentially. There are no fingers on it. It has bandages. It's like a Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. And a little boy, because the teacher has a rubber band and a pencil on the end of it, is playing the piano one key at a time. And I, what I remember most about that day is how much I hated my mom. <laughs> how much I needed this lesson and how grateful I was that it was finally over once it finally wrapped up. And then amazingly, one week later, she came back. And then one week later, mm. she came back. And wow. your question was, what did you get out of that? What I really got out of that was not piano. Like today, my, my home life, I have four children. I'm married. We have a wonderful home, great life. We have a piano. I played last night with my youngest daughter. Mm, I love piano. But what I got out of those lessons was the ability to see past where we currently are 
to see limitless possibility in tomorrow, to not be defined or belittled by an experience you went through or where you currently are. And so, so my mother, she taught me piano, but what she really taught me was vision and possibility. Hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. What an amazing uh, way to illustrate that and not in words and just in action in your experience. And I know something you said in the book around that story is that um, one of the things that, that you mentioned is that it, you realize that in time, things will be better than you can even imagine. And I think that's such a timely message right now, especially for entrepreneurs who are um, perhaps struggling and trying to look for ways to be innovative and really bring forward their work in a new world, really. Well, and that's an important message. And some might be thinking, man, this is really soft. Like we're, we're talking now about hope and piano. And, and I'm telling you right now, there, there's nothing at all soft about hope. The, the opposite of hope, Mm-mm. I think it's like learned helplessness. It's, it's the thought that your life is kind of over, that it's not going to be good going forward, and there's nothing you can do about it. Hope is fuel, man. Hope is power. Hope keeps you alive and gives you something to reach toward. And one of my favorite champions of hope and truth is FDR. And this isn't in the book, but I have a picture of him hanging up in my office. This is a guy who was president for four terms. So, you know, back in the good old days, you could be king, apparently, in our country. So he, he had four terms. Through the Depression, he guides the country. Into the war, he guides us. And then out of the war, he's about to take us. But on the final time he approaches the podium, he's got metal rods on both of his legs. He's been in a yeah. wheelchair, I think, for 23 years. So this hmm. guy has got personal challenges. He's been through it publicly. He's been through it as a society. He's seen it all. And on this final address to the United States, the, the, the people who voted him into office one final time, and I'm going to get this quote a little bit wrong, but essentially he says, the great fact to remember is that the trend of civilization itself is forever upward. And then he goes, a line drawn through the middle of the peaks and the valleys over the course of centuries always, always, always has an upward trend. This is true as nations. It's true as society. And I believe if we're open about it, it's true in stock markets. It's true in just about everything that you're tracking on life. This line that we think is so bad, so dark, these days are so difficult. And right now the days might be very difficult for many. But the great truth to remember always is that a line drawn through these days, through the peaks and the valleys, over the course of your life, I believe, and I think you believe, Ursula, trends upward. Our best days remain mm-hmm. in front of us. Yeah, absolutely. I, you and I, when we chatted before the interview, we were both agreeing that we're we're optimists, that we're always hopeful, and that I agree, it's not a soft thing. It takes a lot of courage in the face of difficulty to be optimistic and to search for opportunities in what what is being presented to you. Well, and it's in particular when everything being presented to you is negative. Yeah. One of the stats we wrote about in the in the book is that 94% of news stories, according to Harvard Business Review, are negative, 94%. And that was taken from 18, 2018, when the market was at a historic high, when unemployment was at a historic low, and life was clearly trending up into the right. And even Hmm. in the midst of sunny, beautiful, beautiful, perfect days, supposedly 94% of news stories were negative. And that's before COVID-19. That's before a recession. That's before markets dropped by a third. Like that's before the storm came. 
So we need people to be honest about where things are. Like I'm not saying everything's perfect all the time. This is not the Lego movie saying everything is awesome. Everything is off. It's not, but it's good. It, it, it is good. The foundation is firm. And I believe the best days are indeed in front of us. Hmm. Yeah, I agree with you, John. I Something that you mentioned a couple of times in the book is stop acting ordinary. And I, I love that it came out of that, the story of your mom coming to see you in the ER mm. for the first time. And, um, but I think it also has real implications for leadership. And I'd, I'd love to explore that a little bit with you. Well, we, we could spend the next six hours exploring that. <laughs> Matt, right? there's, I'd like to answer in two ways. First, from a personal standpoint, and then from a, a more societal one. But, but personally, when I came home from hospital, my dream was to be ordinary, which meant fit in. I mean, when you don't have fingers yeah. and you got scars and you walk with a limp, your desire is not to become president of the United States or run your own business and, and set yourself apart. It's to be right in the middle, to fit in mm. to, and to disappear, to be ordinary. Yeah. So my, my goal for the majority of my life was to just fit into the middle of everything, to kind of disappear into the shadows. And then my life began to change. I recognized the calling not only to to be ordinary, but eventually to be extraordinary, to do more with the talents that I had, to share my story, to encourage others to recognize the beauty within theirs, and to do more collectively together. So I, I don't want to be ordinary anymore. In my own little lane, I want to be extraordinary. I want to be an awesome dad. I want to be a great husband. I want to be the best son. My mom's got six. My dad's got six. I want to be their best. Not <laughs> ego, though. I just want to utilize the gifts given back into the community that I think longs for us to show up wholeheartedly. So that, that, that's from the individual standpoint of stop being ordinary. The other aspect of this, though, is I think many of us are guilty of it. We try to fit in. We worry a lot about people's feedback on podcasts or our work reviews or what our neighbor thinks about our grass or whatever this goofiness is. We're driven forward frequently by ego. And what, what I always like to quote back when people are feeling a little bit too beat down by the day or this, the, this, the rain or whatever it is we're enduring right now, the likelihood of us being alive, this is not a religious comment, it's just a fact. The likelihood of you being in this room, on this podcast, listening to Ursula's voice, listeners, the likelihood of your mother and your father coming together at just the right time to create your life, just biologically speaking, it's less than one in 400, not thousand, not million, not billion, one in 400 trillion. So the very fact that you have breath in your lungs is shocking. It should never bore you. It should never be ordinary. It should never make you experience your days. Oh, damn, one more Tuesday. No, this is not another mundane day in the life of you. This is an extraordinary gift. And so math points us toward that direction. I think truth, history, biology, stats. It reminds us how grand our day is. But so does just looking out the window and watching a magnolia tree unspool in front of you. Life, it is not perfect, not this side of eternity, but it is good. It is good. It's worthy of us stopping acting ordinary and starting to recognize how extraordinary this gift is. Mm. Well, it, I know in your book, you, you talk about that magnolia tree in your yard, and this year, I guess you get to be home to, to see it. Um, how, how do you think, um, how do you see things unfolding in the longer term? I mean, while we're on the, the topic of um, seeing possibilities, um, 
I mean, the, the speaking business, which is the business you're in, has uh, at least, at the very least, radically altered in the past few weeks. And uh, how do you see things in business unfolding as we move forward through this? And it may go on for some time still. Right. I think that's an important piece. So many people listening to your voice, I, I believe, and, and uh, not listening to our voices today, believe that when life returns to normal, it's going to be like when you were a kid on a vacation at a little like lake house and you uh, started playing Monopoly in the morning with your family. And then you went off on the pontoon boat and you had lunch and peanut butter and jelly. You swam in the cove. You came back sunburned. You had dinner. And then you went right back to the board and everything was right there. The shoe was there and the car was there and the iron was there and the money was there and the boardwalk was still there in your corner. Life is going to be just like it was. What we I don't think see yet is the board has been flipped over. The, the pieces are still there. The money is still there somewhere. The game is still there somewhere, but the entire game has in fact changed and will change forever. So how do I think it's going to affect life going forward? Profoundly, but that doesn't mean it has to be negative. It, it does not at all mean it has to be a bad thing. My grandfather, he's uh, he's my hero or something. He's from the greatest generation. And I remember a lunch we had on September 17, 2001. And the re reason I remember it distinctly is because it's the first day that the restaurant we used to go to reopened after 9-11. Mm -hmm. It's also the first day the markets reopened after 9-11. So my, my champion of my life, my great my grandfather, just a phenomenal human being, he and I are sitting there eating noodles together and talking about life, talking about the tragedy that is still unfolding. I mean, smoke is still rising from ground zero. No one has a clue when the next attack is going to be. It's a very difficult time to be alive. And somehow my grandfather whispers to me, oh, by the way, uh, today I made a large investment in American Airlines and in Boeing. And, and I was a finance major. I had 22 and a half years of wisdom. I was really smart back then. I knew my <laughs> grandfather made a horrible investment because everybody knew the market was going to fall and nothing would fall farther than, than airlines and then the manufacturer of airlines. So I, I like yelled back, Grandpa, why, why would you do this, man? What were you thinking? And he looked back very calmly and said, John, do you know why they refer to us as the greatest generation? So I said, tell me. He said, it's not because we endured the depression. Anybody tries to endure difficult times individually and as a group. You, you get through the bad times. You just figure it out. So it's not because we got through that time. It's not because we went off and we served during World War II. When people attack your freedom, when they claim the life of your brothers and sisters, fellow citizens, you stand up, you go, you serve. You don't ask questions. You just line up and go, man. You fight back against evil. And it's not because once we returned home, we built the most productive society in the history of the world. The reason they refer to us as the greatest generation, John, is because we never, ever forgot the lessons being taught during those difficult times. We never forgot the lessons being taught during the Great Depression about being grateful for everything that we have, for not spending more than you have, for having a rainy day slush fund to keep you going forward when things got tough because they will get tough again. We never forgot the importance of getting through difficult times together. During the war, we never forgot the importance of sacrifice, real heroism, and what real evil looked like and the need that we have in our lives to stand up and fight against it. We never forgot those lessons which then freed us to build this society once we came home. 
And so Ursula, it's, it's a long way to answer the question, how do we respond? How does business look going forward? It is going to be determined by how we are learning the lessons and then applying them going forward. So we can try to return to the board and do everything the way we did, or like the greatest generation, we can apply the lessons we're learning right now in a positive way and make the game even better once we come back into it. Mm. That is a great answer. And I, I, it really gets me thinking about something you also talk about in the book, In Awe, that you get to choose. Um, it's a big theme that keeps recurring. And this is, of course, great news for entrepreneurs and leaders because uh, uh, we've chosen the work that we, and cre created the work we're living. So do you think that certain groups of people like entrepreneurs are uniquely positioned to take mm. that advice about getting about choosing absolutely oh my gosh ahead of you? yeah i even think in asking the question you you know you, you let the witness <laughs> attorney you let the witness <laughs> so yes I, the, the beauty of being an entrepreneur and i've i would have never as a kid imagined myself being one and never when i ran my first business or my second business thought i was one and then at some point you wake up and you're like dang i guess I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> you what are. What that really means is where you see a need, you see an opportunity to fill it. And there's an opportunity to profit, to influence, to impact where there once was a need. That's, that's what it means, creatively moving forward. And while many people are going to come back to the board, we keep talking about the monopoly game. Well, man, the game has changed. No one, no one is better suited to handle the new game because no one even knows what it is yet than an entrepreneur. Because already their mind is thinking, man, what, what, what do I see here as an opportunity? What do I see here as a need that needs to be fi fixed? What are my unique strengths stepping forward into this darkness to bring light with me? And so we, we entrepreneurs on this call, we recognize that this is our time to shine, but not to shine out of ego or a hoarding mentality, but to shine right. in such a way where we can build something far greater than is currently being done by others. Mm. That's such an important point to make. And I... Um, I think that it speaks to a sense of agency. Um, I think, you know, entrepreneurs, while we're choosing, um, we're choosing discomfort in a way, pretty much at an ongoing basis. Uh, but we're also choosing to be hopeful, which we've talked about a little bit, but there's that, there's that aspect of hope that requires you to believe that you have the ability to change things that you that what you do matters and um i know there's a great story you tell in the book and and uh i, I just want to read this quote where you said that because the door to your cell is open the guards have gone home you are free to walk out that was such a powerful quote in the book and uh, i wonder if you could tell us more about that <laughs> so i will and while you were talking you used the word agency i've, I've always loved that word uh, yeah. Not so much to describe a business as much to describe a, a, a human being's capacity to really own the possibility within in their lives. And I've never mm -hmm. looked up the definition. So while you were talking, I looked it up. And <laughs> a personal action or an intervention taken to produce a particular effect. Hmm. So a personal action or intervention taken to produce a particular effect. Man, that's awesome. Agency. So that the beautiful quote you shared from your standpoint around, you know, the guards are gone, the jail cell is opened, the chains have been cut, you may move forward. That comes on the heels of sharing the story of a guy named Andre Norman. Andre Norman is an amazing guy on so many levels. He grew up in a very, very, very difficult part 
of Boston. So he's from Mass, baby. He grew up without a father. He grew up with a mother who was never around for him. And he grew up without any positive role models in his life. And it eventually leads him to make all kinds of decisions that you might think would come out of an upbringing like this. He spends the majority of his childhood in juvenile detention. And on his 18th birthday, he stops going there. He starts going and spending hard time. He goes to jail the very first time for armed robbery. He gets 25 years. And then he realizes he's got to be the toughest guy around. So he, he starts acting. And it is an act like he is the toughest guy. He, while in jail, Ursula is convicted twice of attempted murder. He's Mm. charged for nine different counts of attempting to begin riots. This is a bad dude who then spends months in solitary confinement, who has a conversion while in solitary confinement to realize the life he'd been living is not the life he had to live going forward. He didn't have to be the same Andre he was for all these years leading up to this. So at age 27, man, he decides to change his life. He gets some counseling. He meets a rabbi. This sounds like a fictional story, except that it's true. He meets a rabbi who talks about forgiveness. uh, And he learns that he can actually forgive his mother. He can forgive his father. He can forgive himself. And he can forgive those who led him the wrong way. He meets two later aged nuns who guide him forward in, in faith, in understanding, in coming around a cause and learning what is possible in his own life. He becomes completely a different version of himself. He learns how to read. He gets his GED. And the entire time guiding him forward is this desire to graduate, to go to Harvard, which is a ridiculous belief for a kid like this who's going to spend the rest of his life to have. So you may ask yourself, John, how do you know any of this story? The reason I know this story is because the last time I saw Andre Norman, we got in a fight. But, but it wasn't in a prison. It was actually at a lunch counter in St. Louis, and we were fighting over who would get to pay the bill. <laughs> Andre Norman is now a middle-aged man. He's out of jail. He's an entrepreneur. He's running his own business. He's raising his own son. He's doing the right things. He is also an adjunct professor at a college you may have heard of called Harvard. <laughs> it's one of the most amazing stories of a guy who says, the life I have lived does not have to be the life that defines me going forward. So yeah. I, I love him, the man, but I love what, he's, what he models, which is man, hope is powerful. Learned helplessness can kill, but hope can redeem. And so he, he bought in full tilt into hope. He started imagining a different future and imagining it's not enough. You know, there was a popular movement 15, 16 years ago called The Secret. It's not mm-hmm. enough to shut your eyes and mm, like hum. You, you've got to move. You've got to dream. You've got to fight. You've got to roll up those sleeves and go. Andre fought for it and he is out. He's making a difference in his life. Hmm. Such a powerful story. And, and uh, the message around that of looking toward what's possible today and not back on what happened and allowing that to define you, I think is such an important one. In, in your book, you say that you encourage people to lead lives of impact. Tell, tell me what does impact mean to you? Because it means different things to different people. Well, I love that word, and I know you do as well. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm going to use it, in my, in my terminology, primarily as an other-oriented deal. Frequently, we run a business or work out or do a million things for what we get out of it. And that's, that is really fine. It's, it's healthy and wise and positive for your mind and your spirit and your body. So I'm, I'm not critiquing that in a negative fashion, just saying that's one way to impact. You can impact yourself. The way I always seek impact, though, is in what you can do for those around you. 
how you can show up in a new way as a better version of yourself to impact those people so that they can rise with you. And it's popular to pursue success, you know, but I, I think the calling of our lives is not just success individually impact on the front side of our lives, but significance and significance is almost always other oriented. It's how you utilize the very gifts that you've gathered throughout your life. That could be time, talent, treasure, a million things to impact the one in front of you. Colleagues you work with, shareholders you have, students you teach, kids you're raising, people you serve in the retirement communities, the, the business that you're operating, man. As you go out there, do you try to make a profound impact in, in the marketplace? So I see impact as being other oriented. Mm. Yeah, I, that's, I really appreciate that perspective. And I, um, something that I've noticed in working with my clients is that it's, it also requires you to develop yourself mm. at the same time that you're contributing because you can't constantly be giving without filling the well. And yeah, and I think that the leadership, really great leadership, impactful leadership, as I call it, comes out of that. And it, what is, does that mean? What does that mean to you when you hear a term like that, impactful leadership? Well, I agree completely with it. And I don't think you can impact unless you are a leader. Now, that doesn't mean you can't show up and do cool things for people from time to time and drop off lunches at people who you, you recognize might be doing life by themselves and might be, you know, food insecure right now. So, like, there's an opportunity to impact in the community. But if you want to scale that impact, and you should, I think. If you want to really scale that impact around your community, around your neighborhood, around your business and beyond, it does require leadership. And leadership usually means, hey, people, follow me. Let's go together. Let's strategize. Let's create tactics. Let's build this thing together. But ultimately, that person in front uh, has to be two things. Number one is humble. So they, they got to do something that very few of us do well. And you see very limited examples of it in the marketplace today, in particular from our politicians. There's not a whole lot of humility out there on the horizon. But I, I believe great leaders exemplify this trait of humility. So that's, that's one piece. But the second is they got to know who they are. They got to know really what they stand for. They got to grow themselves. They got to grow in emotional intelligence and relational intelligence and everything else so that we can be more influential in those that we are guiding forward. So it's, it's not an either or, it's not a trade-off. It's not, you can only impact out there or at home. It's, it's a yes and, it's an undivided life that ultimately we live. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, John, you're a leader and you work with leaders and you're a leader in, in the messages that you bring to people when you speak. How do you consciously develop your own leadership? Or is that something that just has kind of evolved? Uh, so the answer to your either or is yes and. I, I do believe it's an evolution. <laughs> so that's the easy answer. I think we evolve. And the, the, the hope is to evolve to become better. You are evolving. You are changing. Change is happening. Like it or not, people run from it, but you can't. It's like running from getting old or running from time. You can't. So I, I say embrace the evolution. But as far as being intentional around it, that's a, for me a more recent concept of about 15-ish years you know, what, what happened for me, Ursula, is my, my mom and dad wrote a little book about their son, John, getting burned. And they printed 100 copies. One of them was bought by me. So I got to read the story of like, wow, this thing that was so bad was actually so good. I never knew it. I never saw how much positive was coming out of this. But what a, what a gift. It's not odd. And then a Girl Scout in St. Louis, Missouri asked me if I would share the story at her troop. So I, I said, sure. 
and I never given a talk before, never fancied myself as a professional speaker or as a podcast guest or anything else, but I, I try to say yes when invited. So I said, yes, I'll go. And so I, I shared my, my talk. I looked down at the notes the entire time, never looked into the eyes of those three little monsters in the room, but that's my first talk. And it led to one more and it led to one more. And in the 15 years that have followed, it's led to 2,200 talks in 50 different states in 20 different countries in front of a couple million people just trying to get a little bit better every single day, just getting a little bit fractionally better. And if you can do this over the course of time, what starts off as insignificant over time becomes monumental. You, you are not the same person six months downstream that you were today. And you do that over two years or five or a decade or a lifetime. Wow. And so we, we can unpack a whole lot of ways that I try to consciously grow, but maybe the most important for me is every night before I go to bed, I ask a question. And the question is, what more can I do? What more can I do to make tomorrow better than today? And sometimes that's, uh, man, I got to read a book. I got to slow down. I, I got to pick up scripture. I got to journal more. I got to reflect more. I got to work out. I got to stop drinking, Wh- whatever that is individually. But a lot of times it's, I got to be a better husband. I, I got to let her know I care. I got to be there at my daughter's recital. I, I, I'm going to cancel that meeting so I can be there for grace. I, I got to show for my dad who's got Parkinson's disease. We, we got to start a charity so we can make a difference. We're going to start a whole new revenue stream as an entrepreneur. So one of the coolest ways that I've found to grow personally as a leader and broadly as a guy who wants impact is nightly to ask the question, what more can I do? Mm, Great question and so provocative because it's going to strike you differently every day, depending on what's happened. Yeah. One more cool thing to share about that is not only will you be different, you will be tracking the difference that you are making. So we track entrepreneurs' miles. You track sales calls. You track flow charts and top line revenue. You, you track this stuff. I beg, implore, and demand <laughs> that you track your life. And some people are like, man, I don't want to begin an article with Dear Diary. Uh, today was good. No, not like that. Track your life by saying, man, what more can I do? See what the question you were asking, the answers you're coming up with, and what came out of that. It will blow you away as you look back in a couple of weeks. And imagine picking up a journal from five years ago, thinking about the question you were asking then, what you were doing then, and now what you're doing. You're going to see monumental growth. That's great. That's so inspiring. I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> Something too that I think kind of goes hand in hand with leadership is uh, thinking about the culture that you create at your own company. And you have, you have several people who work with you. And um, I wonder if you could describe what the culture at your company looks like. What's it like to be there? Right now it looks a lot lonely. So John Perry yeah. <laughs> is uh, in this office right now with seven or eight different offices around him with empty chairs, wondering where in the world is everybody? Yeah. Well, this is a, a season of quarantine and, and we're going to err on the side of cautiousness on this one for us. Uh, that doesn't mean I, I'm personally, you know, I live my life in faith, man. I, my eyes are shut and I'm moving forward into the day with audacity, with ferocious optimism. So th- th- that's me. So I'm, I'm here, I'm working, I'm believing, I'm moving into this, this headwind. But I want my team to be safe. I want them to be with their family. So right now it means they are there at home, working from home. Mm-hmm. Also with, with a little bit of grace, recognizing that these are difficult days. So I want them to first start with the person in the mirror. If th- some of them are married, some of them are in partnership, some of them are single. 
but then start with the people they love, then turn in the, into the kids. Many of these people right now are homeschooling. None of them were trained for that in business school. So they're homeschooling right. kids, whether it's four kids for one or two for another. One of them has a little baby on her lap. Difficult day. So you got to take care of that. Then exhale and then come on. Let's, let's get some great work done together. So that's what it looks like now. On a normal day, though, back in the good old days, it looks like people who are very collaborative, people who are very open, people who have firm opinions, but people who are so confident in their opinion on whatever that is, that they're willing to listen to the ideas of someone else. So I, I want to empower people. I want everybody on this team smarter than I am, which is a low benchmark, but we've reached it so far. So every, everybody <laughs> on this team, I'm not saying this to be humble. It is true. Everybody up and down the hall is better and brighter and more sophisticated in what they do than I do. So it's great to work with sharp people who are willing to listen to others. And one of the, if you could say, well, John, what does, how do you do that? One of the coolest things I think we do as an organization is we begin every team meeting with a, a circle around where everybody shares well, you know, the answer to one goofy question. It could be something like, and even during the quarantine, we are doing this. Uh, what's the coolest thing you did over the weekend? What's one thing that you're doing during the quarantine that you want to do once this thing ends? Uh, who was one person who inspired you when you were little and why? What do you think your favorite characteristic is that you have? Talk about it. And so these kind of just broad questions that allow them to brag, which is cool. Now everybody's participating. And the other question they answer is, in the past seven days, when did you see the mission of our organization lived out? And now they're sharing, uh, when I saw Heather meet the mail person on Tuesday, they hugged. And the, the idea that the mail carrier comes in and knows Heather to such a degree that they know each other's first names and they hug goodbye. Man, that's our <laughs> office right there. That's our culture right there. When, oh, I, that's great. when I saw Amy book this podcast, I saw her do this. Then she went above and beyond by doing that. And so we're trying to figure out times, not just uh, I booked a speech, we sold a book, we made some money. No, that's, that's the byproduct of mission. So we want to call forward the mission. We want people to celebrate when they see it around them so that they can do more of it. And if you do more of that, then listeners and entrepreneurs and business owners, then the money comes roaring in behind it. Don't get it backward, though. Don't say, uh, Heather, what have you done to book money today? Amy, you? And go all the way around the room that way. No, it's the wrong approach. So uh, we, we track mission. And in doing so, eventually we'll come full tilt back into top line revenue and bottom line profitability. Hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that infusion of mission or impact is really uh, gives you such a clarity in what you're doing and how why you're why you're there and asking that question in your meetings every day is such a great way to bring keep that top of mind so important something that uh i i really like that that you circle up every morning too it's something that i saw done in a uh, uh nonprofit in south africa that i worked with and uh such a powerful gathering point they actually sing together in these beautiful harmonies in addition to talking about work, so it adds another dimension. But it, it made me think of that um, part in your book towards the end where you're talking about um, the African greeting, sawabona, which means I see you. And you, you go further and, and say this, is, this means you belong here, you're worthy, you are enough. Yeah. And you also say, when we come together, we can truly change the world. And that's a, that's a bold statement. You know, and when I hear myself, sometimes I'm like, geez, I wonder if people think I'm crazy or like a <laughs> 60s flower child. Uh, 
with a, a thing in my hand with that is not a cigarette. But no, like, no, that's not it at all. I, I believe that people who change the world believe, in fact, that they can. And they don't set about to change 7.4 billion lives. They set about to change the one in front of them. That's it. It's as complicated as MLK believing he can change the life of one and then another and yeah. then another. It's as complicated as a little bent over nun from Albania making a U-turn on, on her path to one destination, going instead to Calcutta and saying, I'm going to love the one in front of me. When, when Mother Teresa died, the year she passed away, her organization just a small little organization took care of 30 million orphans. Wow. If you think John O'Leary is freaking crazy, fine. But I'm telling you the ones who changed the world are for those of you who love business. Steve jobs is crazy. He's crazy. <laughs> and uh, I'm holding an iPhone in my hand right now. And so are you like, right. we, you right. have to have a little craziness. If you believe that you can make the world better than the one we're currently living in. So I unapologetically believe that we can change the world. And then I know the way we do so is one life at a time. And ultimately, the way we do that is to make sure the people in front of us recognize that they are heard, they are seen, they belong, they matter, and they're not alone. Hmm. Well, I'm right with you there, John. And I I, I just want to quote one more thing from the book before we get to the, the rapid round. And that is you start recognizing that this is the time that you are the one and that the best is yet to come. Hmm. So I think that's just such a beautiful way to bring so many of the concepts in your book together. And uh, is there anything you want to say and <laughs> say to elaborate on that or oh, response to this? I mean, so the book is called in awe and the idea was this, I would go to these organizations. I, I love the work I do and I love the leaders I speak to, but I would see many of them seated with their arms crossed. <clears throat> and then I would see as we went to break, people would almost like be bored as they grabbed the coffee and the food in front of them and the fruits. And then we come back in and, you know, here we are in Vegas or the mountains or the beach or Hawaii. And we weren't even looking at the grandeur of nature around us, the work in front of us and the lives seated next to us. We were bored. And then I would leave these conferences and go into school buildings with kids. And I would watch as these little ones skipped in. They were freaked. They were fired up to skip into a guest speakers program. They don't even know who John O'Leary is, but they were animated. They would dance in. They would do something really weird that we adults don't do quite as frequently. They would smile. They'd like it's plastered on their faces. When I would ask them questions, all their little hands would go up in the air. When I would say, do any of you have questions? All their little hands would go up in the air. On the way out, they would all hug me as they went back to class, and then they would skip back down the classroom. And I, I just wondered, Ursula, what is it that they have as children that we lose sight of, and how do we return to it? That, that sense of awe, that sense of inspiration, that sense of connectedness, that sense of non-judgmentalness, that last lack of ego, all these beautiful traits, that sense of wonder. That, that sense of optimism, all the things they have. And so the, the book is called In Awe. The subtitle is Rediscover Your Childlike Wonder to Unleash Inspiration, Meaning, and Joy. And on the cover of the book is not a picture of John O'Leary. So you won't find my picture on the front of it or on the back of it. Uh, it's a picture of a blue sky with these brilliant clouds kind of sweetly floating overhead on the cover. And then this one simple red kite that goes up high. And you don't see whose hand is flying it. The idea is, Ursula, it's your hand. And it's the listener's hands. And it's the hands of us children who are returning to the possibility that remain alive and well within our lives at any age. So the, the call to the book is not to be childish. There are plenty of examples of leaders right now 
politically, business, and your, your own lives who are very childish. It's to be childlike, to be childlike. And in doing so, not only will we get a lot more out of our days, but we will be way more effective in living forward and have a far greater future than we currently have right now. So that's the idea behind the book. And that sentence that you just read, the word are, like this is our time. This is our life. It's our next step. And so whether you check out the book or not, man, I hope this interview has, has inspired you to recognize you're one in 400 trillion. This is no accident. You are a gift and uh, it is worthy of you making an investment daily in yourself. Hmm. So beautiful, John, and such a wonderful distinction between childish and childlike. And you really talk about that with such eloquence in the book and uh, share stories from your own family and other children that you've met along the way. So um, yeah, I really encourage people to read the book. It's very uplifting. So I... Yeah. I always wrap up these interviews with a rapid round of three questions. Are you game? Let's go. The first one is, what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? Hmm. So It's a great question. I would have imagined as a young man, I would have thought impact is, can I make more money? Can I get mm -hmm. more followers? Can I sell more books? Can I do whatever more of the ego thing drives me to do? And what I've ultimately learned is the more you make it not at all about you, the more you find the ability to have profound impact in those that you serve. And in doing so, the very things that you thought you might want come back into your life 10x. So I, I'm learning that the more I can get out of my, the way and just love the one in front of me and, and give radical generosity. I mean, to, to such a degree, to, I'm just be, be candid with you for a moment. We had a program that we were gonna sell called the 21 Day In Awe Challenge. And then coronavirus showed up. So we realized, man, rather than selling it, what if, what if we just gave it away? And mm -hmm. so your listeners can join me. It's free. If you go to readinawe.com, it's readinawe.com. There are 21 days of challenges that you can take. There is no charge. It is a gift. And it will remind you of how to take the next step toward possibility. So it's a really cool thing. Mm -hmm. Another thing that we've done organizationally during this crisis is you know, authors make the majority of their money in week one of their book sales. It's when, mm -hmm. that's when, you, man, you're just crushing it. PR, interviews, all this stuff, all the pre-sales, it's all coming through at the same time. And finally, you can run to the bank and high five yourself after that you make the deposit. <laughs> so during this crisis, what we recognize is, man, we're called to be generous. Not only when it's sunny, but maybe even in particular when it's cloudy or rainy and there's storm clouds coming on the horizon. So we're giving 100% of the profits from the first week of sales into an organization called Big Brothers Big Sisters. I'm an ambassador. I'm a big myself. I was a little. I think there's an opportunity for us during the season to not just build up walls, but to knock them down and to really make a difference in our community. So we're seeing this. And rather than just celebrating it with words, you know, I'm a speaker. I'm a writer. Man, I want to celebrate it through actions. So uh, 100% of the profits from the first week of the book in awe are going to go directly into impacting these cool communities that are stepping forward and making a difference in the lives of these littles and also in their families. Hmm, that's great. Thank you for sharing that, John, and for the, your generous offer. I will um, include that link in the show notes so people can just uh, click through if they uh, don't pick it up in the interview itself. Perfect. So the second question in the rapid round is, what's the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? Mm. 
<laughs> I'll give you two things. I know you're asking for one, but uh, I'm, 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 uh, I'm non-binary. It's hard to just trap me in one little corner. So I think the first is to continually remind myself how little I know and how much opportunity remains. So, you know, you think you've, uh, you think you kind of have it figured out and then you get exposed to an entirely new idea that blows your mind. So I've, I've been blessed throughout my entire life to, to be humbled by recognizing how little in fact I do know, but how grand this world is, how incredible people are and how much together as we create a mosaic and we can create something beautiful. We can really do something cool together. And in any area that you want to focus on, we can create something beautiful together. Individually, we fail, but collectively, man, that's when we do, that's when we create real art. So that's one piece to imagine how limitless this world remains. And the second thing is, regardless of what has taken place around me, I keep moving forward. So when I'm physically in pain, which is every day, if I'm being totally transparent, you know, you don't just get over being burned. You wake up every day with scars and that, that you wear it. And so I'm in pain and I'm also dealing with some challenges and a whole bunch of facets of life. But every day, Ursula, I just keep moving forward and I'm not doing it out of ego and I'm not doing it to climb a ladder of success. We're doing it to make a difference. We're doing it to pull back a word. You keep using impact. And so I think that idea of, of recognizing how little, you know, so surround yourself with phenomenal people and keep moving forward. Momentum is completely underrated. So keep moving forward. Uh, that's great. And the last question is, what's if you had to give one piece of advice or an insight with someone who's saying, I want to have more impact, I want to positively affect where I am in the world, what would you say to them? I'd say two things. One is I think people who ask that question don't actually believe they can. Yeah. And, you know, like, so we're like, I want to change the world. And it's like a Miss America contest where you realize she doesn't really think that. She's just giving you that answer. So I think a lot of times when people say, man, I want to change the world. I wonder what's on Netflix tonight. So you don't really believe that you can change the world. You think it's good to say that, so you tweet it out, but you're not, you're not moving on it. So the very first thing I would say is believe it, but believe it. And, and then right behind that is don't under, understate the impact that you can have where you are. I, I think then we think, well, if I want to change the world, how do I move to Calcutta and join Mother Teresa's organization? How do I get into mm -hmm. the White House so I can do, a, do an effective job leading forward our nation? How do I do big things? I mean, the person who probably made the biggest difference in my life and kept me alive while I was in hospital was not Ronald Reagan, who was, by the way, writing letters to our family during those days, or mm -hmm. Pope John Paul II, who heard about this little boy and wrote a letter to him, or people planting trees in Israel, or like this big community who supported this little boy in a time of crisis. Maybe the most important person in my recovery was a guy named Lavelle, who was a minimum wage custodian who every single day of his life took two buses to get to work. He showed up, he cleaned up, he washed up, he gloved up, he gowned up, walked into my room. He would turn on a little radio. He would set it on the corner of my bed so I could hear music. And then he would clean my floor. And if I go into greater detail than that, I'll get emotional. But this, this wonderful, humble guy, which is clean. It'd take him about 10 minutes to do a, a job well done. He would clean my room and the most the thing that kills most burn victims is not the burns themselves. It's actually infection. And the most mm -hmm. important person on the team is not Ronald Reagan. It's not Mother Teresa. God bless them both. It's Lavelle. It's a custodian. It's the least among us who remind us during times of crisis that they are, in fact, the most important. And one of the beautiful things that COVID-19 has reminded us all is how incredibly vital healthcare professionals are, CNAs yeah. are, 
RNs are, the, the people stocking shelves in the grocery store, the ones we used to walk past ignoring because they're only stock boys. They're not so unimportant anymore as they've kept the food line alive and well during a crisis. So we are seeing evidence of heroism all around us and we are celebrating that. So if you want to really change the world, believe it. Quit saying it, believe it, and start where you are. Mm. Such a powerful message to end on, John. And I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It's been uh, really inspiring to hear your own story and to have you share uh, so many of the wonderful things in the book that I think will help motivate people and move them toward the action that you talk about and, and really have some impact, whether it's locally or beyond. So thank you again for being here to talk about that. Ursula, it's been a pleasure. You're, uh, I love your show and I love your questions. Oh, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? You know, so We have a podcast called Live Inspired with John O'Leary. So obviously you love podcasts. You chose well today. So congratulations with Ursula. We have one as well. I, I, I love what we do. We have a whole bunch of social media handles and you can learn all about that if you go to readinawe.com and it's simply read in awe.com. I'll be there to wave at you when you show up. And I encourage you once you do take the 21 day challenge. It's free. It's cool. It's life giving. And it will remind you, and I've said this a couple times, I'll say it once more. It will remind you that your best days are in front of you still. That's great. Well, thank you, John. And thank you for the work you're doing in the world. I'm honored. Thank you, Ursula. Join us for more episodes. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Leave a review if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of entrepreneurs like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.